Let's start with some tough love, all right? You two suck. Say my name. That's what the kids call Prissy guy with the mustache. You're listening to Inside the Gillivers, talking all things Breaking Bad, El Camino, and Better Call Saul. Brought to you by the Royal Bobbles Collection at bobbleheads.com. For all your favorite characters from the Gillivers, shop the Royal Bobbles Collection at bobbleheads.com. Also brought to you by Rode Microphones, the official microphone supplier of Inside the Gillivers. See their entire lineup today at rode.com. Now, please welcome your host, Eric Broadbent. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us for Season 2, Episode 22 of Inside the Gillivers, talking all things Breaking Bad, El Camino, and Better Call Saul. My name is Eric Broadbent, and it comes with great pleasure to welcome tonight's guest. You get to hear this music and everything from Breaking Bad, as I said, uh, Better Call Saul, El Camino, and countless other projects. Music supervisor, Thomas Golovich. Thomas, how are you? Very well. Thank you so much for inviting me. You're, it's nice to have you here. And it's, we kicked off last night with J.B. Blanc uh, from the Gilliverse as well, too, and uh, an incredible voice actor and on-screen actor as well, too. And he said he was terribly happy. He went, how, how do they I said, how are you doing, J.B.? And he's like, I'm terribly well. I've never heard that put that way before. I think he may have coined the phrase. Yeah, I think he might have. I said, well, I'm terribly happy to have you there. So he kind of threw me for a loop. I had to kind of rebound from that, but thank goodness I'm quick on my feet. But it's nice to have you here. Uh, it's been a long time coming. We've had one of your colleagues on the show, as I was telling you off the air, uh, Dave Porter, who uh, we all love. Is it fun working with Dave? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, we've been working since the the pilot of Breaking Bad, so since the very, very beginning. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a thorough joy, you know. We've all kind of grown up together. We've kind of learned... Uh, we, we've learned each of our trades or maybe gotten a bit better at both of our trades together, which has been a really fun journey. Nice, nice. Uh, we're going to talk some records tonight as well, too. We see a nice collection behind you. We've got a couple questions about those, but it just reminded me to think of something. Uh, now, am I seeing behind, directly behind you? Am I, what am I seeing? Are those, those aren't CDs behind you. Are those, what are those? Those are DVDs. Um, I had a, a project a few years ago, which was uh, an audio video mashup project. And, I basically got brought out to like Sundance Film Festival and different places and I would be playing um, essentially music videos. It would be music I would curate and then I would collect all of these wonderful, weird experimental films and then chop them up with editors and then we would present them as these sort of mashups. It was all completely illegal and filled with all sorts of copyright (laughs) violations. But very, very fun. And it was just a, a it was a great reason for me just to keep on collecting like dance movies from the 20s and, and you know, experimental films and like, you know, Yodorovsky, you know, head trips and finding fun ways of connecting different ideas and then attaching them to new music and then changing it all the time so that the montages would shift. The, uh, the music would shift. Uh, it was just a very fun way of audio video DJing. Basically. Okay. Well, the reason why I wanted to comment on the on the collection is I, I listened to I, this one radio station in Detroit. I'm I'm really close to the Detroit border, and I've been listening to this radio station WRIF for over 30 years. I mean, they haven't changed their format. You know, knock on wood. It's a great rock and roll radio station, and they have it's a great talk radio in the morning. Just love their talk show. Uh, it shows my age when I like talk shows, but I guess this is one too. So hopefully everybody likes the show too. <laughs> but anyways, they, they, um, we're talking about, um, the, you know, the vinyl movement, right? So vinyl has uh, always been popular. It's coming back in droves right now and, and I love it. I've never escaped it, but they were talking about CDs and they were saying how, do you think there's going to be a, another CD movement? And the, and the DJs were saying, no, I don't think so. What do you, what are your thoughts on that? Cause CDs are kind of so stale. Do you, do you ever think there'll be a CD movement again, a resurgence of CDs? 
I don't think so. I mean, I think partly because, you know, the, the, the thing about digital is that it made a, a certain level of convenience. The, the negative, I think the part that people miss is both the tactile quality of having a physical object, which a vinyl does really well. Mm-hmm. There's artwork attached. You know, if I pull out any of these records, like there's wonderful artwork and there's a sleeve in there and I can look up information on d- the different, you know, side artists who did the cover design, all of that. It has a sort of wonderful tactile quality to it. CDs have a version of that, but it's not quite the same and everything is kind of jammed in. And then once we moved it towards digital and it became like the world of Spotify and other digital platforms, I think people just began to consume music differently. And I think that the vinyl resurgence is people beginning to realize that there's something very special about not having the option of just jumping ahead to the next song or just only the singles and listening to albums as pieces of art that are statements, an artist statement in a moment. And not every part of that statement is a single. Not every part of it is something that's, you know, has so many plays and, and tells you about all those plays. You should listen to this one. So, um, you know, I'm working on a podcast um, right now with some old friends of mine called Deep Cuts. And one of the things that we love doing is going through the records and finding those songs that we really invested in and found really engaging from different artists that are overlooked now. And because they're not high up on the Spotify, you know, playlist and because they're not sort of go-to songs, they're not the singles, people have forgotten them, but they're really quite extraordinary and they're great artistic statements. And since we all are very competitive with each other, we're all buddies from high school, we get to share them with each other and kind of turn each other onto it. And I think that that's part of that same resurgence of vinyl, that there's something about digging a little bit deeper and finding ways of really, um, having your relationship with the record change over the course of time as you listen to it and putting that needle on the record is a very unique and special experience. Also, a lot of the music goes directly to the artist in a way that it doesn't necessarily when you're, you know, streaming it online. So I think a combination of the convenience of digital media and having sort of the tactile and collector uh, qualities that come from vinyl are really the two tent poles. CD to me is useful for people like me. I'm a music supervisor. And when I'm delivering music for uh, a TV show, it really helps to have a digital file available. A lot of times we'll reach out to the record labels and say, hey, we're licensing this. Can you please send us the WAV file, the uncompressed full audio quality file? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they don't have it because a lot of what we put into the shows are stuff that's never been licensed before or is obscure. So me having the CD handy, which I have quite a few stacks of CDs behind me, has saved me on more than one occasion where we didn't have to send over to a mixing stage a sort of lower qual- audio quality thing for a feature featured montage because thankfully somewhere there was a CD available, but I hope CDs don't go away, but I think that they're not going to have the kind of emotional resurgence that vinyl has had. I agree. And one word that you said there, which really stood out, perked my ears when you said it was an investment. And and my son, Eric Jr. and I were just talking about this yesterday. We were having a conversation about vinyl, deep, deep conversation. And, you know, we're saying how it's, it, the minute you drop that needle, you've invested, you've invested, you're, you've made a commitment you know, now you've made a commitment and you got three to four, maybe five songs uh, on that, that side. You know, you got to get up and flip it. You pop on a long extended play, like a long CD and you go off to the bathroom, you go to the kitchen, you do your thing and you just kind of forget about it. But with the record, you know, you got to get back up in a minute. So you're like, okay, all right, I'm here. And then with the liner notes and the artwork, a perfect example, I'll grab one. One that you've got some commitment to, obviously, the yeah. El Camino soundtrack. One of them actually probably... Uh, one of my very favorite records in my collection, just because of the artwork. I mean, it's everything. It's a story. But even if there is only like 15 words written throughout the jacket liner, 
you don't you never seem to get through them all when you you're listening to the record you're there and it you know if you're looking at a book and only had 15 words and you say that's all i get to read but it just seems to fill the experience it fills the whole 50 60 40 minutes whatever it may be 90 minutes you know it's just such an experience and there's nothing like it you just don't get that with the cd now when digital become really popular, I would be paying for songs. I would download them like records, but I would also go buy the CD of my favorite artist. If it was like Joe Satriani or Van Halen, I had to have that physical CD as well too to complement what was on my phone or whatever. But there's just nothing like this. Yeah, I'm also incredibly paranoid. Like I don't like the idea of somebody having a leash over the access to art. And to me, the idea that and no offense to Netflix who I work for and no offense to <laughs> Spotify, who I have, you know, the things involved with Spotify, but I don't trust that there's not going to be some sort of external force that will shut down the ability to have access to it. So having all these physical things seems insane on one level, but on the other level, I also know that I have more movies than I could probably watch in a lifetime, just collected over the course of time or films I want to watch over and over again. And I do feel like having these records around me really has, there's a different type of relationship. And maybe that it goes back actually to the way it was for people who collected records like myself is that, you know, I live in a small town outside of Boston and I would have to walk 20 minutes to get to the center of town to catch a bus, which would be another 40 minutes to get to the train station, which would then take me another 45 minutes to get into the city to the record store. And then when you're in the record store and you're flipping through, there was no internet then. You didn't know what these things were. You'd just be like, oh, I recognize the name of that saxophone player on that album. Hmm, I wonder if this is good. Or this was produced by this person. Or you just start to connect the dots. You're like, oh, Daniel Lanois was involved with this. He's almost always involved with things that are great. Let me take a risk. Buy it being kind of poor kids we were like all right it's seven dollars used can i validate this you know and it's like and you really hope when you bring that thing home which again is the same two and a half hour journey to get back home (laughs) put it on now you're really like i'm invested like i want this to be good and in a weird way that's a great way to perceive art and to experience artists to recognize that there is a certain investment we put into it as listeners, as well as the investment obviously put into it by the artists that make it. So uh, to me, it makes you a little bit more selective, but it also makes you a little bit more um, open, cognizant and invested in just hoping it's going to be great. You know, I agree. And that, I, that's, that's amazing. I've heard some stories. I had a friend of mine share a story, a very similar story. He got to go see Frank Zappa one time, but he's like eight years old. I, I don't even know how he got there. 10 years old. We got on a bus, did the same thing, bus into the city train to hear blah, 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 to go see Frank Zappa. I mean, what an experience, but yeah, that, that's so cool. I mean, to, to make that, that thing, and you don't have the opportunity to hear, hear a review on the record. If it sucks, you know, you've not only you've, you spent your money on the bus and the train and everything to get there, you spent your time. Yeah. There's a community. I mean, I think about the zines that I used to read when I was a kid, you know, and I would like, you know, you would go into the record store and you'd see three or four magazines and you would really read the reviews. Like there was a sense of, of reverence, you know, to the work. And it wasn't all fluffy. Like there were times when you would just enjoy somebody tearing a record apart or, or, or just finding something that's really special about it, even though it's a flawed album. And I think there's just something nice about it. And again, we live in a time where we're almost oversaturated with opportunities to watch art. But I do think that there's something very valuable about recognizing the parts that are really special and being able to really 
put focused time in. And I think, you know, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad and, and El Camino, all these projects, you can tell the amount of love that went in from every department involved, every person involved in that project is huge. And the leadership that's leading us down that path have a really clear idea of where they want to go. And we kind of figure it out together, but their leadership is sort of what gets us into the spots to hopefully come up with the ideas that are inspired or the moments that are surprise all of us, you know, and those are beautiful. Do you, do you ever, do you ever watch, uh, Anthony Fantano on YouTube needle drop? Do you ever watch any of his videos? He does. My son turned me on to him and he's pretty, pretty well respected on YouTube. He's got quite a few followers and he does record reviews all the time. And he, he's a pulls no punches, you know, like sometimes he'll, he'll just like, you know, some really bad reviews, but it's, you can generally base a review on what he says. Um, you know, if you're looking for a review, if it's a commitment to go buy that record, you're not going to buy it till he says it's good. You can almost always bank on it. You should look him up sometime whenever you have spare time, which you don't have a lot of, but Anthony Fantano, the needle drop, I think he's called. Yeah, he's pretty, a pretty good YouTuber. So before I jump over some questions coming in from our members and our, and our uh, lovely viewers, there is a person I wanted to say hi to. I told you I was going to surprise you. Uh, so I got to be friends with him years ago through, I used to do another a little podcast. It was called Rocking Dead, and it was talking about all the music in in uh, in Walking Dead. And uh, this fellow was Glenn Mazzara, and he says to say hello to you. I love Glenn. Glenn is. I have a quick anecdote about Glenn. Okay. When Glenn took over after Frank Darabont left uh, the Walking Dead, um, I, I was on the first season as well, and um, uh, uh, Frank left, and then uh, Glenn took over. And one of the first meetings I had with Glenn, he said. I hate the music process. It's my least favorite part of it. And I just thought to myself, oh my God, this is going to be a nightmare. Like he's, and I thought, well, to his credit, he's being so honest about it. And we ended up having the most wonderful collaboration. Like I adore him. And I think helping to make the process of figuring out what music can do in a project turned out to be tremendously fun. And really largely because he was so open and so collaborative and really interested in exploring different ideas. And I'm really proud of what we built. I worked on the first five seasons of that show. And a lot of the joy of that, honestly, was working with Glenn, which, you know, I love Frank. He's an incredibly talented person, but I don't get the impression Frank was particularly interested in my ideas about music. I think he had his own ideas of, you know, he's used to saying, here's what I want, go get it for me. Yeah. Glenn was more like, let's have a conversation about what we think is going to be helpful in telling our story. And to me, that is a gift, you know, for, for a music supervisor to have somebody who says, hey, we're in this together and, and I would love to find a way to make this fun and engaging and interesting and hopefully we can find the great ideas together. And that's really how it worked with Glenn. So I, I have nothing but respect for that man and, and affection. He's just a lovely, lovely person. He, he is, and and he has a great musical palette himself too. I mean, when he's writing, he'll always say, "Today's playlist, what I'm playing today." And I know he absolutely adores Bob Dylan, you know, and and things like that. So it's just nice to see what he's listening to, so diverse. And he was, he, I mean, this goes to I, I'm telling you, I'm telling you something you already know how cool he is. But Junior is he compo He was doing a, a cover of Bear McCrary's uh, theme of The Walking Dead. He was doing it on the piano, and Glenn he was having a bath that night. And Glenn calls him and said, "Let me talk to Eric Junior. I got to talk to Eric Junior. Tell him how good he did this thing." And it was it both him and Bear were like just blown away. And I was like, "Wow!" I mean, that's, <laughs> that's cool. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's you know we all work on lots of different projects over the course of many years, but I think one of the things which is so nice is when you have people who are really genuine collaborators, almost all the top people turn out to be really nice people. They're genuinely interested in working with you. They're genuinely interested in the joy of it. 
Uh, all of the bad experiences I've had as a professional music supervisor were honestly with mediocre talents. They were people who are either desperately insecure or they had some sort of problem that they were not addressing. Uh, it, they never did great work. It was always, you know, the, the really great projects, the projects I'm really proud of are the ones that like really were with wonderful. I love working with Alan Ball and Alan Poole on Six Feet Under. I learned so much from them. They were just very genuine, real people trying to make something really special. And I feel that was the case with Glenn, with The Walking Dead, and obviously with Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. And, you know, we've been tremendously lucky. And really the best people out there are usually really decent people. You know, it's very rare that you come across jerks. Jerks don't survive in our world. No, well. no, not at all. No, because there's too many vying for the same thing, you know? Yeah, and we will talk deep about Vince and some of the creative people that you've worked with. But we're going to jump over to some questions from the Super Chats here. This is from Lisa Love. She says, what type of research goes into choosing the specific music for each scene? Do you go more off emotions, the scale and depth of the scene, or is it just overall feel of the scene? Do you have any favorite musical artists? That's, that's a loaded question. The deeply uh, sophisticated question. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. A lot goes into it. Um, it is a mix of things that are cerebral, emotional, intuitive. Um, I think that there's a lot of serendipity to it. Things sometimes just land well. Um, our preparation for every season, and this is really unique for Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. I feel it's one of the great gifts of working with that team. But we usually come in in the beginning of the season when the writer's room is just kind of figuring out the arc of the season. Like we're about maybe they've kind of done outlines for five or six episodes. They have a sense of where they're headed to. And then uh, myself and my team will come in and we'll just have a really fun collaborative conversation about where's the story headed. We then build mixtapes based upon that. And the idea is that we know that our story is advancing, you know, it's moving in a certain direction. And we try to figure out how we can connect the dots between what we understand to be the new conflicts, the new struggles, the new direction that each of the characters are going, and what we already know from the previous palette. And then we build these mixtapes. Um, we'll send them off to them. Sometimes they show up in scripts. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're just ideas. Sometimes they're just good listening. Mm -hmm. A lot of times I'll go back and look at the list and I'll be like, wow, our season's completely different from all those ideas. And that happens a lot. But I think part of it is it gets the, the machine running and it gets us really thinking things through. Um, if we have new characters, sometimes we'll start to build mixtapes for them ahead of time. We don't know if there'll be any music moment with that character. But for me, it helps me get to know that character. It helps me get to know how they work, how they tick. And when you start to see the actor's interpretations of that, that sometimes will change too. And I'll be like, oh, they read a certain way, but this actor has a different angle to it. Let me see if I can find a way to do that. And you never know if it's going to be something that will be really helpful or whether it's just our process. But I think for us, thinking through in music terms is really a key part of it. Then there's the practical side of it, which is that we have a budget to work with. We have, uh, you know, time constraints. Um, sometimes we will reach out to some of our colleagues because we know that we have to get things that are clearable. Uh, it's very important for us to not pitch music ideas that are unclearable. That has happened on occasion where we will pitch something and it turns out one of the companies doesn't want to play ball with us or there's an ownership dispute. And I think we tend to vet everything ahead of time for Better Call Saul, partly because I think that they take they take our uh, previews very seriously and they have a lot of emotional connection to it. And to feel like you have the right answer and then you can't have it for the reasons of budget or because of clearance issues is heartbreaking. And so we tend to do a lot of extra work to make sure everything we send over, we know that we can clear. 
And that is sort of a part of our, our process for that show. So that will become part of it. Sometimes it's very practical. We'll read through the scripts and we'll say, oh, we're in a cafe. We are going to be in the car with this character. We're going to be doing this and that. Sometimes there'll be like montage, which is the great joy. It's like, oh, we've got a montage. Okay, <laughs> let's see. Let's start. Let's start getting ideas together. Yeah. And we just keep building ideas and building ideas. And sometimes we'll send the ideas before uh, the scene is shot. So it might be inspiration for how they want to do it, especially if they want to time things out. We did that a number of times in Breaking Bad and I think also in Better Call Saul where choosing the music ahead of time was really key because the shots were really designed specifically to land in the right way. And so having those early selections is really key. It's also really important because we want to clear the music ahead of time because we don't want to now do all this legwork and then find out, oh, we have a problem. So it's a, it's a strange mix of elements, but I tend to go primarily from emotion and from my empathetic experience with the characters and where I think the audience wants to be with that character at that time. Sometimes you want to be really close with them and sometimes you want to watch them from a distance. Sometimes you want to have some empathy with them. Sometimes you want to push them further away. And I think that is a, a sensitivity in how we read the characters and how we develop those ideas. And then hopefully when we present those ideas, some of them will really resonate because it's kind of following the same ideas that they have. And sometimes there are surprising ones, which is I think the best ones where you're like, I don't know why, but I think this says something about the scene and I can't even articulate what it is about it, but I want to present it to you in case it resonates with you as well. And sometimes it does. Well, you answered a question I was going to ask later on too, was about the licensing and how it can possibly surprise you at times. And and Tom had said something, we'll talk about Tom Schnell's more uh, throughout the program here as well too, but Tom made a comment one time about, it's not about music, but it's like when you're writing in um, children or uh, pets into a scene, you better be sure you're ready to be committed to that because, you know, with pets, you know, animals becomes, you have to have handlers and trainers and all that kind of stuff. And then children as well too, there's all kinds of issues with that. So if you're going to do that, there's a commitment. And with the music as well too, you know, if you, you have, you know, because that can really build a mood as you, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here or all of a sudden, because I, I mean, just myself as an amateur editor, I'll put in a, a free copyright track into a song and for some reason I don't like it. And then I'll put another one and like, oh, wow. Or I'll sometimes I'm forced to use something else. I'm like, I don't like this now. It just kills the whole mood. So I, I know that in time as essence, as, as you said, you're on a budget. You don't have much time to go back and say, uh, well, sorry, the one we thought we could get, we can't, you know. So I get I it. No, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. No, it's okay. I get it. But as as the last question from Lisa, there, she had any favorite musical artists? Is there someone that really just uh, is is in your in your mind a lot? It's almost impossible, honestly, because I, I think part of my job is to both be a very good reader of scripts and a, an empathetic uh, viewer of the story and recognize all the sort of. Um, you know, the, the, the storytelling part of it. But another part is to listen to a ton of music and to almost understand it all as colors and pictures. So there's never really specific artists. It's almost always like, you know what, there's something like, for instance, with, with Jimmy McGill, we should talk about how he's evolving, obviously, into Saul Goodman. One of the discoveries that I think we found as we were moving through it, and hopefully this will answer her question, was that the music that we ended up placing in some of the featured montages in the early seasons was not jimmy mcgill's music it was the music that he wanted to believe he was it was more sophisticated it was more groovy and more confident than he ultimately was and as he became the true version of himself as he became saul goodman it got dirtier and funkier and and more uh more gritty in a really interesting way and i think 
that was a journey we couldn't have predicted. We just kind of slowly figured that out. I wouldn't be able to say, oh, I love Tom Waits. I can't wait to find a Tom Waits moment. Tom Waits is very tricky to place because Tom Waits is very specific. There's a lot of idiosyncratic qualities to his songwriting, his voice, his instrumentation. It's putting a pretty big thing into a room. It's got to fit really well if it's going to. Uh, we actually found a spot in The Walking Dead with that, but that took seasons to get there. Um, so I think you you have to be sensitive to all the different aspects of the music. Like I love Radiohead, but Radiohead is also not only very expensive, but and also very selective. They won't put their music into anything. But also it's kind of now a Radiohead moment. And it's and, dated. Yeah. Well, we we put them into Six Feet Under when it was new, and that was like a great moment because it worked so well. But Honestly, I have found maybe three or four moments where Radiohead song was really a viable option, even though I love the music so much. But I recognize that it's very difficult to place them into our projects because there is so much that comes with that. And so that's part of the job of recognizing what are the nuances to this particular song, to this particular artist, and also to what degree do you want to have music that people recognize, and to what degree do you want it to be something that feels like an introduction? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I like I like a lot of bands that aren't dated, like your Led Zeppelins, like your older Van Halens, and, and things of that nature, Black Sabbath. Like, I'm a hard rock guy, but I like it when it's not dated, and your work through Walking Dead, and of course with, with uh, um, Breaking Bad and, and the whole Gilliverse, I feel we can watch those shows, uh, you know, 20 years from now, and still feel like we're watching something Thing fresh, you know, like it's not tying it down. You don't really, and it, on camera as well too, you don't want to see, you know, Facebook open on a computer or, you know, things like that to point you back to this, you know, this time period. But, and, and it's been, I'm glad you mentioned color. I'm really, really glad you mentioned the word color because I've interviewed several other uh, musicians where they talk about the spectrum of color in music. So in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is all about color and it's the theme and the feel, right? So it makes complete sense that the music is looked at that way as well too. But here's another question. I'm going to pronounce this name wrong and I'm very, very sorry. Um, uh, Eleftherios, uh, I'm so, forgive me for the pronunciation, says music adds so much value to the image. Uh, how did you come up with El Paso for Felina? Was that, uh, what was the process? Oh, I think that was a scripted one. I want to say that was one of Vince's scripted ideas. Um, I don't remember. It's, it's funny. One of the nice things about the project is that these ideas come from everywhere and, and keeping track of where it came from. But I believe that was one of Vince's ideas. The story itself is really key. I mean, if you listen to that song, it really is in many ways kind of a, a key parallel to, uh, to, to Walt's story. And it comes at a key moment. Um, I think that's one of the things that we also have fun with is the idea of, Sometimes the lyrics are incredibly important, and sometimes it's really important to listen to them carefully and to, and to recognize what we're adding to it. And other times it isn't. And other times it's a secondary, you know, issue. I tend to usually come at music not from a lyrical point of view, but more from an emotional point of view. And then if the lyrics also further inform in an interesting way, then I'm really happy about that. But I don't feel like it's a requirement. I'd much rather that you felt the feeling. And then if you were able to kind of understand or diverge, you know, divulge what the lyrics are, or look them up, you kind of get a sense of where we're headed with it. But I don't feel like they should, you know, they're not, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I don't think you need to have them always match up. But I do think that it's important to not to be distracting. You mm -hmm. shouldn't be arrows in the wrong direction to or, or give implications that there's another part of this story so there's a sensitivity to you know it's, it's a huge thing it's like it's a choice right so if an editor is putting a, a shot in he's saying that's the take that i wanted that's the take that really captured this moment 
And for the music, it should operate the same way. Yeah. That, you should, that This is the moment for this piece of music, and it's going to take you hopefully deeper into the story in a, in a compelling way. I'm glad you mentioned that because a couple episodes back, we had Chris McCaleb on, uh, editor, uh, editor extraordinaire, and he was talking about a particular scene, and I, I don't know if he even divulged which scene it was, and if he, if he did, I, I apologize, I forgot, but he was actually adamant. He did not want music for this particular scene, and he said he was even downright mad because the music went into the scene and then when he finally you know looked at the big picture was like they made the right choice they made the right choice and it's so cool how you know you we you know everyone puts the trust in the editors and the editors have their jobs to do and they do a phenomenal job comes to life in the editing room it's cool to hear that from him yeah i think i think all of us have been in that situation before like uh, there are moments when i've looked at a scene and i thought like i don't know if we need i think that was actually a big part of the early days of breaking bad was that when uh, I first met with Vince and the whole team for the pilot of Breaking Bad, they had just put in temp music into the whole pilot. And when I came in to meet with them, which was like many hours of waiting while other people had meetings with them, I was, I think I was in a laundry list of supervisors that they were meeting. I saw a lot more, more veteran supervisors coming <laughs> in and out the door as I was sitting there. And um, the first thing I said was, I love this. This is one of the most exciting hours of television I've ever seen. But I really don't like the music. I, I don't like what's in there. And they're like, wow, well, we just spent two weeks putting that together. Oh, geez. Like, All right, hot shot. Then what would you do differently? And I just said, way less, like just strip it all out. Like you have an incredible show here. You don't need to be gilding it by adding all this extra stuff when the truth is it's already there. And it's also making the audience, instead of leaning in, they're leaning back because they're being told all the time how they should be feeling. Ah is that all of the nuance to me at least is in the, those moments of the performances and sometimes just holding back really, really helps to work. We also had to do that for budget reasons. We had very little money uh, in the first few seasons, honestly, until season four, I think we were struggling and, and we're still, you know, even the budget for Better Call Saul, it's one of the smallest budgets that I work with. It's not a large budget. So you're dealing with constraints all the time and we spend everything. Like, I don't think we ever have savings. I think we're always right at the line. <laughs> Just like we try to fill it all and make it sure it's all up there on the screen. But yeah, music is, and I think going back to the Chris McCaleb quote, I think what's really nice is that all of us are hoping that we have the right answers and we're all artists, we're all creative, we're all thinking we have the right idea. But I think sometimes we can be surprised that the right idea is something slightly different than what we thought, which is sort of why I think I always think of the delivery of music being very similar to an actor's point of view. A really good actor is going to look at a scene and have a few different approaches to it, different ways that they'll do it. I remember watching Frances Conroy, uh, who's uh, the mother in Six Feet Under. I watched the dailies of her performances and I could see her making very interesting choices. And those choices changed the weight of her performance. It gave the other actors different ways of responding to things. And I think that was very inspiring to me. So when I thought about music, I thought, I need to have five options that are all different. They all add a different quality to it, but they're all tethered to the scene in a very specific and interesting way. And that way, when people are watching it, Hopefully, they can find that one piece of music that glues all these different ideas together into one cohesive whole or helps to connect them in a way that would be resonant and, and really almost get rid of all the seams. And I think that's what music can do sometimes. It can help you make a moment feel even more cohesive because there's one other element that is adding to the vision of that and, and hopefully in a way that's surprising and exciting. 
I love the way you explained how, you know, just people being pushed back. Like, like you're the, the show is making the direction we're telling you how you should feel. And, and that's why I think the show is so popular because we're not, you're not, you're not saying that they're letting the audience feel that an experience of themselves. I think maybe a way you might agree with me is like having a 15 piece drum kit doesn't mean you have to hit every drum, right? Don't have to. And, and you figure out, when do you lean forward and when do you lean back? You know, and I think that's a, that's a delicate dance. Like mm-hmm. I liked, I like to grid out music inside episodes. So if I know here's where we are in the scenes, like if I'm getting very, very hardcore on it, and I definitely do this with movies, I'll break every scene down, have a rough idea of how long those scenes are and I'll graph out where music might be. And then I'll look into the different characters and say, okay, here's this character story. Here's this character story. How do we tell that character story? And is there a beginning, middle and end? that music can contribute to. Sometimes it isn't, sometimes it is. And when it is, I wanna make sure that I've really thought those moments through. So maybe I can say, you know what? I know we're thinking music should be here, but I think if we don't have it here, it'll be that much more powerful when it comes in here because it leaves the audience waiting for something. It's yeah. not waiting. You're just, you're, you're getting, and then when you do get the information, you're like, oh, I knew that was what I wanted. And I think that's part of the engagement of the audience. Like Vince is so good at giving you just enough information that you have to piece it together. And what I think, you know, and, and Vince and Peter do this, I think brilliantly in, in Better Call Saul and really engaging the audience to try to figure out what's happening and to stay maybe a little bit behind it, but to the point that they're catching up. You know, I, I think it's just, uh, it's it's great storytelling. And I think that's part of what I think for us, we have to catch what they're doing and figure out how we can contribute and not work against their good instincts. I agree. And it all comes down to the interpretation. And that all comes from the writing, the actors, the musical score. And I've, I've talked about this numerous times lately. Was uh, even I think I, we talked about it with J.B. Blanc last night. Sometimes we perceive things and we'll be talking to our friends. Remember when Jimmy did that? Jimmy didn't do that. We just remember, like I'm using a bad example, but we think we saw something. But by the way we perceived it and we all perceive it as well. So it's not just one person going crazy. We all thought we saw something that wasn't there, but we were, we, our perception because of the score or the acting, the script, it's amazing what the mind can do. And I think also because we're the last part of that line, you know, both Dave Porter's score and, and, you know, my, my team's um, music suggestions, we are kind of the last chance to figure out if there's another angle to it that it's almost there, but not quite there. Or even saying like, oh, we have too much information here. Can we throw one other element that's going to throw that off in an interesting way? And I think that is sort of the neat part of music is that it can really change the experience and the absence of it, which I think is as much a color as anything else. It's like the absence of music is very much a deliberate choice and it's an important one. And you can really figure out how to fill in the space in a compelling way. Putting music in all the time doesn't work well for these shows. I think it does in other ones. Just these, I think, are a little bit more spare, but they're always very purposeful. We never, ever put music in without a lot of deliberation. Would there, would there be a lot of amateurs out there in, in the business, you know, whether it's a much lower budget, uh, you know, maybe from indie up to uh, decent budgets that would want to just put a ton of music in there? Does that still happen today? Are, there, are they just saturating it? Well, you know, I think everybody, you know, every project's different. Mm-hmm. Every project has different needs. I think also people, 
have, um, they go with what they know, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think in many ways, one of the reasons that there was a lot of music in the first episode of Breaking Bad is that Vince had been working in the X-Files. X-Files tends to saturate music throughout. So you just learn that process and you don't know a different process until someone says, maybe there's another way of doing this. Mm -hmm. um, I think honestly, like a lot of what I've learned is just watching how other people make certain choices and trying to understand, you know, what are the, what are the patterns that I've learned really well from and what are the patterns that are maybe not doing me a service or is there another way of doing it? One of the great things about the job of music supervision is that the more projects that you do, the more you learn, the more you figure out, oh, I can get further with this or I can get weirder with this. Um, I tend to use a lot of international music and a lot of sort of more obscure music and that can be really exciting, but it's also important to not be exotic for exotic sake or not throw things in there that are just there to be flashy or to be different. You have to have always a reason. And once you take things that seem to be counterintuitive, how do you tether them to the story? How do they attach themselves to that moment in a way that's really compelling? And then you work with music editors to be able to really present them in a way saying, here's the way this idea I think works best and the way we think that is best presented. So everyone's really involved and it's a very collaborative process. And sometimes we're very surprised by the selects, but sometimes we kind of know we have one great one and we got four that are perfectly solid, but one of them is just kind of magical. And we just hope that that's the one that gets selected. Yeah. Well, you and I talked off the air as well too. That, that creates, a, it's a good problem to have, but then you've created this, you, you're a bar for yourselves. You, you're raising this bar for yourselves each time sometimes. And that sometimes might not be the best. What do we do now? We, got, we just did this hit, you know? I would say this for any amateur out there. I think that's a great uh, argument to never put in music that you think, well, they'll like it, even though I don't think it's right. Because in a weird way, a lot of times you're then setting yourself up for failure, right? Because the idea being that there is a lowest common denominator idea, is there is a first wave idea. And I think that you should put all the ideas that you present, assuming it's a project that has minimal choices as these do, um, you should really think every one of them through and you should feel excited about every one of them. Like every one of them could be the right answer. And it's the same thing for an actor. You know, you don't want an actor coming in and doing something that's completely counterintuitive to their character. You want every moment to have some truth about the character coming out. And that can be an almost a line reading, the posture that they stand. And for us watching it, we're also looking at that too. So if I'm seeing Howard Hamlin, I'm thinking like, oh, that's interesting. So we're in his environment now. We're, we're trying to read how confident is he is. Is he, is, he, is he the master of his universe or is he in an unstable place? Can music help to accentuate that? Is he using music as a salve for his state? Is he using music like Jesse? We would use music not of what he loved, but how he wanted the world to see him, mm -hmm. you know, how he himself. So it's kind of like choosing some of those elements. If we're trying to understand a character's music, did they stop listening to music in high school? And how old were they then? What was the year? You know, what was the moment in time that was most exciting and they were engaged with music? And then maybe when they disengaged with music, what is, you know, how much time has passed? And that can be really helpful in trying to get to know the character and get to know a little bit of what role it may play. 
Agreed. And I've, I've read some really good interviews of yours discussing this exact same thing where, you know, like for, let's take an example, like American Psycho or some kind of crazy serial killer, maybe a Dexter or something of that nature. And you expect, you know, like the, you, the, you, one would expect me like there's a serial killer. They're absolutely crazy. They're going to be listening to some kind of, you know, crazy metal or some just very aggressive music. Meanwhile, they're playing some beautiful Chopin piece or something. And it makes that person even crazier because you're expecting crazy, but there's a tranquil side. Right. And it's like that person's really scary. I think that's also really important because we're dealing with, you know, storytelling and storytelling frequently has like good guys and bad guys. And it has sometimes very evil characters. There's something very joyous about finding the because I don't think that the bad guys think of themselves as bad guys. I don't think sociopaths think of themselves as sociopaths. They view themselves as being normal. And music can sometimes help you recognize their own twisted version of their own normality. And it's, you know, you mentioned uh, American Psycho, like that was all written in the book, but, you know, using Huey Lewis in the news, and I think they had Whitney Houston originally in the book, which they didn't end up having in the movie, but that was good examples of like that saccharine pop that almost everyone can relate to and, and feels a sense of connection to is sort of same thing for Patrick Bateman. And he has a sort of weird passion for it. And I think there's something very compelling about being able to figure out what does it mean? And, you know, you are a hard rock guy, right? How often has hard rock gotten a bad reputation when the fact is most hard rock people I've met are really sweet. Yeah. They're really lovely people. They're shy and, and thoughtful and, 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 you know, empathetic. And, you know, at the same time, you're listening to like, you know, Norwegian death metal and you realize, <laughs> wow, like, where's the connection? You realize, well, the connection is because they're emotionally channeling a lot of things through this music and they're able to feel the feelings of those people. And a lot of the musicians that I've met, especially who are in hard rock bands, tend to be really sensitive, thoughtful people. And this is sort of a part of their emotional process. So to understand that is part of our job and being able to figure out what if we had something else? Like I love that Lalo whistles cool pop songs from his world and that he has a musicality to him because he prances through the universe with a sort of lightness and ease. And there's something great. It would be terrible to make that dark and, and needlessly when in, the fact is he's not that. No. His, Part of what makes him so dangerous you, you just his charm is 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 astonishing and suddenly you realize like this person is a completely dangerous person he could turn on a dime i and know performance you know that's very very well said and, and that's the thing too like he's smiling at you you know a beautiful big smile next thing you know he could be shooting you or killing you you know it's just crazy yeah, yeah. And- it's some good audio questions coming in here in a second as well, too. But there's a couple other super chat questions. Uh, here is one from Jen Stevens. She says, loved your choices in episode 303, uh, Sunk Costs. How did you come by Alfonso, uh, is it Mustender? Uh, by uh, Todd Terrier. Yeah. Uh, for the Kim sequence, it was perfect. Oh my God! What a nice thing to hear. Uh, yeah, having a uh, having a Norwegian uh, uh, disco electro disco artist uh, for Kim is not a not an obvious choice. I think it was you know Peter Gould had said something that was really uh, exciting and kind of set me off on a, on a, on a journey, which is that he wanted to have a, this being like Kim's superhero theme. So I thought. This is a hyperactive superhero who's kind of on the very edge of control. Like she looks at any moment that she's going to crash and burn. And as I listened to different music, I wanted something that had a lot of energy to it and had a sense of, of, of extraordinary confidence, but at the same time felt like it's just on the edge of, of, of skittering out of control. And to me, the Toteria track just has that. It has a manic energy to it. And because it's not a... Uh, 
it's not something I think most people had known. It's a relatively obscure artist, uh, hopefully no longer. But, um, you know, I think that there was just something very magical about that particular song. And it kind of captured that basic premise is that this is Kim's superhero theme, but she's a superhero that's almost on the very edge of control. And to me, like that kind of captured that. So you never know, like we try so many different ideas against picture and, and we kind of fall in love with the sequences and you try different ideas. And at some point you just think like, oh, wow, this thing has such a crazy energy to it. And it's so off-putting, but it's also very positive and it feels like a superhero theme. And that's sort of where we landed. And who would have known too, I mean, back in the day that Kim was going to be like this juggernaut of a character, right? So, I mean, that probably changed some, okay, guys, we got to regroup here. We've got some meetings. What are we doing with this Kim character? And yeah, she's taking on a landscape of her own. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a similar thing happened with Aaron Paul on Breaking yeah. Bad. Yeah. I, I think that as he was originally written, he could have easily disappeared or been killed off in the first season. And we would have continued on with, you know, Walter's journey. But the truth is, Aaron Paul from the very first frame was just so scintillating. And when you saw the chemistry between, you know, uh, um, Brian and Aaron, it was so obvious that this was this was the show now. And I think in the same sense that Ray Seahorn, as soon as she arrived, I think everyone recognized like this is something really special. Like this is something really great. And now, of course, everybody's incredibly nervous about what's going to happen to Kim's fate. And it's one of those things where the amount of emotional investment people have is just so powerful. And that's, I think, one thing that I love so much about television. It's hard to do that with film because film, you have a relatively short window to invest the audience. You can help to completely hypnotize them and take them to another world, but it doesn't have necessarily the long-term resonance that storytelling on television does. And when you have an actress like Ray Seahorn, who's just, I mean, just breathtaking. I mean, every choice she makes, I mean, it's just, uh, it's just such a joy to be able to look at those scenes and figure out how in God's name can I help? Like, or can I help? <laughs> right. Yeah, she, she's beautiful. She's been on the show a couple of times and what she brings to the show is just uh, simply amazing. We're going to jump over to two audio questions. We're going to come back to a super chat from Lisa Love. And I've got a question from Bob Rich, Mike Fall, uh, Fallout as well too, Fallout. Uh, so here's the first one. This is from Karina and here you go. Hi, Thomas. This is Karina. You seem to have the ability to choose songs that forever change how we hear that song ever again, and we forever link the songs to those particular scenes. I have to use the example of Todd and El Camino. You said his appreciation of American pop music with real emotion works as a counterpoint to his blank, cold-eyed killer face. How did you come up with Dr. Hook's Sharing the Night Together? I don't remember the specifics of that song, but I do know that when we were working on Breaking Bad, um, you know, actually, I think that was a script. Was that a scripted one? I don't even remember. Again, I, I don't remember, but I know that that particular moment uh, in many ways stemmed from a scene that we had had in Breaking Bad where Todd was sort of trying to make his move on Lydia and we wanted to have music playing, you know, in the environment to kind of help, kind of help the sort of misguided romance of it. And what was so nice was this when we realized he definitely uh, he's a complete cold eyed killer and a complete sociopath. But again, there is a sort of a wonderful softness and, and, and sweetness to the songs that he likes. They're they're candy colored, you know, and I think we ended up using Oh Sherry by Steve Perry, who is just an absolutely lovely human being and is a, a, a he actually came to our uh, our, our finale uh, party. But uh, we ended up using his song for Todd, and I think he was very generous in letting us utilize that. And I think he understood that was an important part of that character. And so in a way with Todd, and it's an excellent question, 
Todd is is almost more terrifying because he is just like us. He's like just that person that <laughs> loves good pop music and sings as they're driving along in the car. You know, there's and just the the thud of the of the hood and Jesse in the trunk and the whole situation is just absolutely insane. And you know, again, back to Vince Gilligan, like that that movie is Vince from beginning to end. It is to me like one of the the greatest experiences being able to help Vince with anything. And that project, he had his fingers on every single part. And I be willing to bet you that was his pick for that because it's just a beautiful song and it's it's just perfect that's it fit it fit very very well and i've made fair brought the record out to show as well too and we are very much like todd a lot except we don't drive our own dead bodies in the back but (laughs) here's a question from Lori. one sec hey there thomas my name is Lori. when you're not working do you have many moments when you're not thinking about some kind of music or a song Also, how many vinyl records would you say that you have in your collection? And do you remember the very first one that you got? Thanks so much. Oh, what a lovely question. I think I can probably pull it out. I think the very first record I ever got, let me see if I can find this easily. That would be original or a repressing of it? No, I think it's the original. I think this is literally the one that I got. I want to say it was Star Wars. Oh, no way. But it was not the regular Star Wars. It was this one right here. This is the Galactic Funk by Miko. So it was like a disco version of the Star Wars theme. Uh, 1977 is the year. So this is the first album I actually bought with my own money. Uh, I'm sure I heard Beatles records and other beautiful things before that. But what a wonderful question. As far as how many, um, I don't know. It's probably a few thousand. Um, I kind of don't keep track uh i have a lot of cds as well they kind of wrap all around here um i think you know it's a little bit like you know asking a a, a junkie how many times they got high they're like i kind of forgot <laughs> you know yeah. it's like it's happened a lot over the years so um but yeah I, uh what other i missed another part of the question i think was there another part to that she asked about the first record and she asked oh we're listening to uh taking time off and not yes. listening to music that's an excellent question um you know, in a weird way, I try very hard to kind of turn my brain off with this stuff, um, but it's hard. You know, I think this is, I'm very lucky. Like, I love storytelling. I love reading. I love watching films. I love, you know, uh, listening to music, and I get a chance to do that all the time. So, in a sense, there's very few moments that I don't have something going through. I have a hard time just stopping and just relaxing. I don't think I can listen to music casually. Mm. Like, even if I go to a restaurant, I'm hyper aware of what's playing a lot of times. I just have to stop my brain and be like, hi, you should be speaking with your girlfriend with clarity instead of thinking about what a weird remix this is, you know? And this is kind of one of those things that is the the, the curse of the job is that you have almost a hyper awareness of it. Filmmakers have the same problem. Mm-hmm. It's like hard to watch a movie and not be like, why would they cut on that part? Or what's the choice? What's with the color shading on this? Or is that a boom I'm seeing like popping into the frame over here? Or is that just a strange plant? Yeah. It's like you're hyper aware of all of the parts of it and you have to train yourself to turn it off a little bit. I love, I don't have to be in charge of music. It's the best thing in the world. So if I have a party at my house, my favorite thing is to say, here, go have fun. Like whatever you want to play, play can't wait to hear your choices oh that's great I'm, I'm really glad you showed that star wars record i was unaware of that one but one of my first records not not the first but one of the first really important ones to me and i just got it again thanks to my better half but it was a star wars um a uh, new hope official soundtrack and it's not the soundtracks like you would know for, for sure i i know i'm a bit older than you uh, i think I'm, I'm gonna say i am in this case um but 
it, it was the soundtrack. It was the basically watching the movie without watching the movie. It was all the dialogue edited down, but it's you're listening to the movie, and it came with a booklet about a five to an eight page booklet. And I had that when I was a kid, and I, I, I mean, I knew the dialogue so well. I could, I could do every character's voice. You know, I was a kid just looking at this thing, and we saw it in a local record store again, used recently. So I left it at my mom's forever, you know. As and then she got rid of all that junk. I was like, I want to go back get my Star Wars record. I found out it was worth money, and it's gone. So we got it again, about thirty five bucks, uh, double disc uh, LP, and it had, and it had the booklet with it too. Oh. I was just, I was like a child again, and it was so yeah. great. So that's my favorite. When I said, and I think you'll, you'll I, El Camino is my second favorite. And Star Wars is my first. <laughs> it is. But this is my second favorite record I have. But I knew you'd appreciate that being a Star Wars fan. But enough about that. There's more important questions. Uh, this, we're going to jump back to Super Chats. This is from Lisa Love. And we're getting close to the hour here. Uh, instrumental music that played during Mike's stakeout scene at the Kettleman's house in Better Call Saul was brilliant. Uh, were you involved in choosing the specific piece of music for that scene? Happens to be my favorite. Thank you, she says. Oh, wonderful. That's so nice to hear. Uh, yes, that is a French artist named Chris Joss. If I remember correctly, I hope I'm remembering this correctly. I'm actually going to look this up really quickly to make sure that I'm right about it. Uh, it's it's super, super fun and really exciting. He's a very unusual artist. It was actually kind of tricky to get it cleared. I think we, if I remember correctly, we were trying to get it uh, approved for a soundtrack album and we couldn't get an approval on it. I love that sequence as well. It's, it's in many ways part of us trying to figure out Mike's sound. And I think Mike's sound has been a really enjoyable and 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 challenging in a really wonderful way uh uh process yeah it was in episode 107 bingo i can see it right now tune down is the name of the song and you know chris Strauss is just a really unusual artist i don't even think that's his real name um but he creates a sort of interesting kind of electronic lounge i think a lot of it is played with real instruments um he's really brilliant and i you know these are these kind of wonderful artists that you stumble upon and you realize I'm in someone's very specific universe and I'm going to surrender myself to their creativity and I'm going to sort of like process as much of it in my brain as I can. And at some point you think, hmm, how do we capture this? And then you kind of go back and like, what is calling me? There's so much serendipity to this stuff. And then you start digging through. Sometimes it happens easily. Sometimes it takes days. I've had, I think for that scene in particular, I want to say we spent probably a week just going through scene after scene, idea after idea, like wave after wave of ideas. And when we got to that, it really just felt right. And I think that's sort of also a, a big part of that is the, the, you know, our collaborators, Vince and Peter are really great at being able to encourage you to keep going when you feel like you're not getting it right. They never make you feel bad for it. They just say, this is good, but I think we can do better. And that, to me, that's like a, a really exciting challenge. At times it's painful, but you know, when you do land on it, and I think that was one of those moments when we landed on it, it is kind of in, unforgettable. And that's sort of what you hope that it takes you to a place that's really unique and special. So what a lovely question and what a, what a nice uh, observation. A good question for sure. And, and I'm, I'm all about uh, like discovering artists by through licensing, either through video games or the shows like we, we love, we're talking about tonight. And, and I happened to discover one 
um, that I loved. And this was funny. Like I was like, I never profess to know everything about these shows. I just run a podcast about them because I love them. And I'm learning from, from our guests like yourself every night and our viewers and the questions. I learn new things all the time. So I was educated. I had Gordon Smith on the show and we were talking about uh, one of my favorite scenes in season five was season, uh, episode 504 Namaste where Jimmy, and I was talking a little bit about this off the air, uh, Jimmy gets the bowling balls and he throws them over at Howard's gate and wrecks his car. And obviously the name of the show, obviously episode because of Howard's license plate. And I was saying to uh, to to Gordon, I said, oh, the, 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 the track, the, the score that was playing at the time during that scene was just great. And I said, Dave knocked it out of the park. And, and, and I was attributing it to Dave's work. Um, and, and I think it's a compliment to Dave as well, too. Um, it was the percussion. Every time I hear a percussive feel, I think of Dave right away. And, and, and uh, Gordon corrected me. He says, no, 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 that wasn't that. I, and I don't think he knew what it was, but he, did, he knew it wasn't Dave. He said it was, uh, you know, as our music supervisors, he picked that track. Long story short, I've got the record here. It's not much to show because it's just a black record in a, in a, in a sleeve. This is my son's. And the song, this is a crazy, Aphex Twin is the artist, as you know. And the track is called, uh, what is it called? Uh, Disc Hat One and a long name, Computer Controlled Acoustic Instruments Volume One. So, Keep in mind, my son is 15 and he's listening to this stuff. He's now got nine of his records and some of them are very obscure. And I was just telling you off the air, he posted the picture of all these records on his bed last night on on Reddit. And the Redditors are like, go, way to go, kid. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Apex Twin is such an exciting, Richard D. James is the name of the artist and Apex Twin is sort of his nom de guerre. Um, he's a, an incredibly talented artist. He's been around uh, releasing music, I want to say, maybe the late eighties, but certainly the early nineties. Um, I remember I, I got a, uh, I probably have it above me here. I got a 12 inch of a track called polynomial C, which was this sort of crazy electronic pattern of music that just built and built and built. And it transported me away. early techno. Essentially it was what it was. And I just was mesmerized by it. And that got me on a, a journey of listening to his more ambient stuff and his more, you know, experimental stuff. And I, I, props to your son because I think once you open that door up uh, to an artist like Aphex Twin you're able to go really deep he doesn't do music that is um, anything but sincere mm-hmm. and I that, you know, whatever that journey is, it may be harder to listen to at times. It might be more abstract at times, but there's always a real sense of sincerity to it. And I think that's one of the great gifts. Like, you know, I, we mentioned Tom Waits earlier, like Tom Waits is one of those artists, like I'm thrilled when people go through those records and they hear his early seventies work and they get into the eighties experimental records and watching him evolve over the course of time. It's a great gift to find artists that have that much depth. And I think the hope in many ways is that if somebody hears Chris Joss, for example, in Better Call Saul, that they'll go and check the records out. They'll go and, and, and buy them or listen to them on Spotify. Because I do feel that all the music we put into the shows are really special and those artists are special and many of them are overlooked and they're worth another listen. And, and I hope that that journey will continue for them. Yeah, to pay it forward. And, and, and Richard is, what's something great about Richard is that he didn't want, he doesn't want to be popular, never wanted to be popular. And at one time, Junior told me he even took his records off of, uh, like he took them down so they weren't being sold. He, he just wanted to make them for his friends to hear it. So kudos to, to him. And I like his ambiance stuff the most. That's my favorite of his, you know. But the last two questions here uh, from Bob, we've got one from Bob Rich and Mike Fogout. I got to ask you this too. This is from Tom, Tom Schnau's coined this thing. This is, this is a funny thing. When we go off into this Gilliverse every Friday night, in this case, Saturday night, we go to this imaginary place where Vince Gilligan encapsulates everything. It has a smell, okay? Um, uh, I, Jean-Claude Esposito actually said it smelled like Tom Schnell's shoes and something else. Yeah. 
So there's yeah. there's two things. It smells like this and this. And there is a right answer. Uh, Tom coined the phrase. So it's this and this. What does it smell like in the Gulliver? So I'm going to ask your opinion of that. I don't even know how to answer that question exactly. Like, okay, it, so it, it might smell like uh, some people have said it smells like gun smoke and uh, regret. Okay, so it's it's just a, it's a fun little gag we play. Got it. Um, I'm not good at these kind of things. Let's see. I, I would say, um, how about it, it? It it smells like sunshine and living underwater. Okay, uh, very good answers. Both wrong. Uh, bacon and fear. Bacon and fear. Okay, bacon's a lovely smell, and fear is a, a wonderful uh, gut instinct. I'll buy that. Okay. That's fair. And I won't go, I won't consume any more time because we've got two questions waiting. But I, last night, because, and you're an audio guy, of course, so I'll just say this night, last night for JB being a voice actor and uh, one of his traits, I said, look, we're going to coin something new. What does it sound like in the Gilliverse? So I, being a Van Halen fan, I said, if it's in the Gilliverse, anything from Van Halen's Fair, Fair Warning album and the cold start of a 1968 Chevy Camaro. <laughs> That's the sound of the Gilliverse. But we got to put some Pink Floyd in there too. Van Halen, Fair Warning, and some Pink Floyd for Tom Schnauss. There yeah, you go. Yes. I did my Tom Schnell's due diligence tonight. Okay, Bob Rich question: uh, What are movies? Uh, what are movies and TV shows that have awesome song selections to you, with songs that capture the vibe of the production and reveal important things uh, about the story and character? So maybe something outside of your wheelhouse, something that you watch as a fan. Uh, and I know sometimes you, it's hard for you to turn off work, but is there anything that really moves you? Oh God, um, yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm I'm rather terrible at but. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of the shows that I love the most are ones where I'm not paying attention to the music. So maybe that's part of it. So I would say the most showy uses of music are probably the ones that I don't pay the most attention to. I can give you one, actually. I think that the original score to the um, the Jonathan Glazer film Birth, which is his second movie done by Alexandre Desplat, is one of my favorite pieces of music in a film. I think it, a, a film that has extremely high ambitions and doesn't always meet those ambitions, the music Music is so transportive and so extraordinary. So I would say that is one thing that I can strongly recommend for anybody who loves original score and wants to kind of get lost down that avenue. I think it's a really beautiful one. Um, as far as TV shows, that's an interesting question. Um, it's funny. I've been so in, in work on all the projects that I've had right now that I've not been honestly paying attention to, to television the way I used to. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have one for you on that one. I would say, uh, you know... Uh, again, I also don't love judging my colleagues' work. Like right. I feel like the job of being a music supervisor is so difficult and so challenging and so rarely rewarded that, you know, economically or otherwise, that I almost feel like anybody who does it, God bless them. You know, More like power I, to you. I would hate to either pinpoint one and forget another or or ever denigrate someone else's work. I think it's a very challenging gig. So I will, I guess, sidestep your your answer. But I'll say if you do want to check out some great score, the film Birth is really very extraordinary. Very well said. And I mean, if it's out there, Netflix has got it. Your Prime Video's got it. More power to you. Congratulations. You know, enjoy your enjoy your film of choice. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. awesome. And the last question here for the evening, this is from Mike Falgout says, and this is a good one. Um, can you discuss in any detail the creative process behind the choice of pick yourself up for the jail executions montage? A tick, 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 that went fast. Uh, it, oh man, that was good. God, yeah. I mean, one of the big problems that we had is that there's a lot of violence in that scene. And that was one where we were very concerned about the clearance on it. Um, 
you know, where that thing landed, I don't remember. I know that we tried a lot of different ideas on it. I think we landed on that when it really felt absolutely right. Um, as far as the clearance goes, I remember it was one of the most carefully worded license requests that we'd ever sent out. It was very detailed. One of the really important things I think, you know, for us, because when you're licensing music for a TV show, very rarely are you able to show them the scene. You know, generally speaking, no one's able to see it ahead of time. So you're really developing trust and you're saying to somebody, listen, I know you don't know what this is, but we, we're using your music in a respectful way. We had to be very clear cut that this is a very violent scene. This is about Walt having his entire world change and to have an upbeat and really charming and lovely song that really kind of captures in many ways sort of, uh, you know, uh, it captures so much about his transformation as a character and having Nat King Cole and his voice uh, as part of it is just a very, very unique situation. So we had to be very honest and very direct about what it was. And we lucked out, you know, it, it reminds me of like the association. And when we had, you know, our Wendy, the meth whore having a day in the life and the lyrics were just literally telling the story of what we're watching. And we were just really honest with them. We said, listen, we think this is really great. And I realize this is an unconventional scene, but please understand there's no actual nudity. There's just a lot of suggestion. And I hope that you guys are cool with it. And God bless them. They were, they came back and they said, you're approved off. You go to the races. So wow. I think, those moments, you know, it's really important for us to a get to the right answer, but also to find a way to get everybody to approve it and feel good about it. Because what you don't want is to have a scene of extraordinary violence or, or difficulty and have somebody's song that was written with a completely different context in mind and have them have it surprise them or to make him feel bad about having approved it. So, you know, we're very much in an ecosystem and it's important for us to always really uh, respect that ecosystem and, and, and behave honorably. And my credibility is very important to me. If I'm asking for something, A, I want you to know I don't have more money, so I'm giving you all that I have. So please don't come back and throw a higher number at me because I then have to find and replace a really great idea. Two, I will always tell you if there's something that's problematic about the scene, I will never you know, ambush you or convince you to do something by not being honest. So in a way, we have to also really work as brokers of integrity. You know, I think that's an important part of our job. I think the, there comes a time too, like a lot of the, your people that you reach out to know your credibility, know your reputation, and you're not going to blindside them. So I, I would assume that assists somewhat in, in, you know, no red flags coming up because they know no, nobody was blindsided last time, you know, and you, you don't have a reputation of that, you know, saying we're going to do this and then you totally go the other way. So, I mean, that probably helps a lot too. I work on pretty edgy materials. So you know, a lot of times um, it's really important for me to kind of be really upfront about what it is because not everybody will respond that way. And I think in those situations when someone says, you know, the song is really, actually one of the thoughts was uh, TV on the radio. We had a song of theirs in, in Breaking Bad um, and it was from a Dear Professor album and I'm sorry, a Dear Science album. And uh, the song was a very personal song for, for the lead singer uh, Tunde and it, and it was important for him to know the context and it was important for us to be able to use the song and I could totally understood if he said no because it's, it's a personal song about his, himself, his family and you know, 
to his great credit, we made the case and he felt really good about it and we got the approval and we put it in the show. And it's one of my favorite moments in, in my career, one of my favorite moments in Breaking Bad. But that was only really because we had gone through a lot of effort to make sure that the artist understood that we were not being disrespectful to the song and for the context of the song, that it was helping to tell our story and was not in any way, you know, denigrating or being disrespectful of the work that, that had been done. And I think that's part of it. You know, we're taking one copyright and moving into another copyright. So there's a business side of it, but there's also an emotional side of it. And music is important to the people that make it in the same way that art is important for the people that make the art. Agreed 100%. Well, as we wrap up here, this is probably a bittersweet time as well, too, for for you uh, with season six uh, well underway. I think you're up to, up to episode seven now, I believe, maybe possibly even eight as far as filming. Now, there's still lots of pre-production or post-production. But uh, have you, I'm not going to ask you what you've seen. Of course, I'm not going to ask you that. But have you, have you seen some footage? And are you, are you have, uh, you're working on it right now? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, uh, the, the process for Better Call Saul, it's like the longest production process I have. Like, you know, we, we're in from the very earliest stages of the scripts and all the way to the final mixes. So it's a very long window and, you know, there's no greater joy. I mean, this is my favorite project of all time. Um, I, 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 every day I get a chance to work on it. I feel so fortunate and, you know, it's also really a great joy for me working with my team because it's a new team now we've had to adjust the last year and it's exciting for me to be able to introduce them to what this is because it's like I don't know if you're ever going to have anything that's this special again you know it's like you hope that you will and we all hope that we will but we all know this is really unique and really special and I think everybody on the Better Call Saul team knows that we are very fortunate and this is our last chance to do something incredible and you know we're all focused on the goal of how do we tell this story in a way that's really really honest and has real integrity and and is following the vision that Vince and Peter have created for us you know it's a, it's a road map but it's our it's our walk to do you know we may know roughly where we're going but we're doing it all together and i think that's that that part of the family part is going to be very hard to say goodbye to i can imagine well every piece of work you've done is great but imagine this uh, this one has a special a special place for you does it yeah. does like if i had to retire at the end of better call saul season 6 i would be like you know what it does it all that I've done. Yeah, it's maybe it's something else. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I can't wait. I, I know it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Dave's going to be back here very, very soon, probably within a week or two. So we'll talk to Dave about it. He was even hinting at it like long, like he was here last year and there was already talk of, you know, season six, you know, the, fin- the finale and everything. And he, he knew nothing really much at that point, but he knew there would be meetings soon and discussions and stuff like that. So I'm anxious to find out where he's at as well too. But listen, it's been absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you so much for spending your Saturday evening with us here and all of our viewers. It's been fun to have a second show uh, and, and uh, for accommodating us as well. So I, I really appreciate your time. I respect your work greatly. I know we're all huge fans and uh, it's so nice to have you. Uh, you're a wonderful host and you, you, you ask very thoughtful and interesting questions and your listener questions are fantastic. So thank you to all the listeners and what, what it was nice to hear their voices too. So <laughs> it, uh, I really appreciate your format and I was very honored to be part of it. Thank I, you. I, they make me look good. Trust me. I, the, I, I like to deflect all the time. Um, yep. And, and uh, in some, some good ways and some bad ways, but uh, they make me look good. So the credit's all theirs and you're a great guest and I've been waiting to do this for a very long time. And maybe after the season wraps up, I don't want to rush that, but when it does, maybe we'll have you back and we'll, and maybe you and Dave at the same time or something, and we'll do something really crazy and have some fun. 
That would be fantastic. Thank you. And thanks, everybody. For sure. Before I let you go, I'm going to say, uh, obviously, thank you to you. But I want to thank a few other people here as well, too, that make this happen. We'll say goodbye to you off the air. I want to thank uh, Sandra Lee, our executive producer, my beautiful better half, our show sponsors, uh, Warren, Rachel, and team at bobbleheads.com. also like to thank our channel members, our Patreon supporters, our channel moderators, our super chatters, YouTube subscribers, of course, uh, our PayPal donators, and those that purchase our merch like I'm wearing right here and drinking from that coffee cup at the Broadstash Boutique, broadstash.com. Uh, you're all truly incredible. And if it's your first time here this evening, please consider hitting that subscribe button down below and we'll work just as hard to keep you as a subscriber as we did to get you as one. And tune in again next week will be episode 23. And I think that's the finale of season two, which means we have to do a season three of this Gilliverse thing. We'll just keep talking Breaking Bad and El Camino and better call Saul till the cows come home, right? But listen, thank you so very, very much. This has been awesome. We'll say goodbye to you off the air. Everyone, see you next Friday. Have a great, oh, 4th of July is tomorrow, right? Uh, Independence Day tomorrow for all of you. Happy yep. Independence Day. Celebrate safely, please. Uh, if you're playing those, using fireworks, don't use illegal ones. Don't cross the border to get them. Use approved fireworks. Don't aim them at your friends. Keep your dogs inside. All that good stuff. Be safe, everybody. And we'll see you next time right here. Until then, cheers. Thanks again for tuning into Inside the Gilliverse with Eric Broadbent. Be sure to check back each week for more great discussions and interviews with cast and crew from Breaking Bad, El Camino, and Better Call Saul. 